If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 12. As I mentioned a moment ago, this will be our last message from uh, the summer psalm series, uh, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. As we turn to examine, to explore God's Word, uh, interestingly, God's Word indeed examines us. So let's go before the Lord now in prayer once again. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we would be in darkness without your light. We would wander around lost had you not found us and brought us into safety and security. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so, Father, would you, through your word and by your spirit, shine your light into our hearts? Would you be pleased to conform us through your word and by your spirit more and more into the image of your son, Jesus? Father, we thank you for your word. May it have its way with us as you're gathered people come together in Jesus' name. Amen. The Psalms, 150 Psalms divided into five books. Many scholars believe that the division of the Psalter, uh, the 150 Psalms into five books, mirrors that of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. These Psalms. These songs are indeed at the same time familiar but also foreign. They were written a long time ago over a period of 12 centuries from the 15th century to the uh, 3rd century BC. And whether it's Psalm 1 or Psalm 150, they are offered as prayers to God by Israel. Indeed, even to this day, the Psalms are seen as the hymn book, the prayer book for the church. And we do well to spend time in this hymn book, in this prayer book. As we go through even this summer from Psalm, I believe, 5 to 12, we've seen that they're diverse, yet they are unified as they're centered upon the one true and living God and as they capture this divine human encounter. As you know, children especially, you, you look at the Psalms and they don't look like a, a story. They don't look like a narrative account because they're written as poetry. They cause us in reading them to slow down. It's hard to speed through the Psalms. And in slowing down and thinking about and meditating upon the Psalms, they inform our intellect. They provide knowledge. They arouse our emotions, they direct our wills, and they stimulate our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms by faith, we come away not just informed, but transformed as well. Now the Psalms are central to the worship of the church, and the church, I believe, doesn't need exclusive psalmody, but we need inclusive Psalmody. We need to include the Psalms in our worship because as we've been seeing, true worship 
is biblically grounded and guided. It is focused on God. It is centered upon Christ. And it is enabled by the Holy Spirit. And here on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, as we look to God's Word, we have to ask ourselves, is our tank on empty? Many of you have had a difficult week. The, the, the light may be on your dashboard right now that says, please find a gas station. And here, together, through God's Word, in the company of God's people, we refuel. Are you lost today? The Psalms call us to return. Are you scattered? Do you feel pulled in a thousand directions? The Psalms here call us to refocus. Because as the Psalms help us to worship, worship changes us from who we once were to what we are becoming and one day we will fully be. Corporate worship on the Lord's day reorients us and realigns us. Now what do I mean by using those expressions? Worship as reorientation in the case of false gods. Worship of the true and living God causes us to move as God works from unbelief to belief. But worship not only reorients us, it realigns us in terms of we are capable, easily capable, of the false worship of the true God. And so worship is not just that which calls the unbeliever to, to faith. Worship continues to call the believer to growing maturity in that faith. The Psalms before us are a precious treasure for the church. Why do we turn to the Psalms? You know, I've told you children that if you open the Bible to the middle, generally you're going to hit the Psalms. It's a big, long book, 150 chapters. It's got the shortest chapter in the Bible, and it's got the longest chapter in the Bible. And why do we turn to the Psalms? Is it just because they're easy to turn to? You just open it up in the middle? No, I believe we turn to the Psalms because the believer recognizes that while the whole world around us is full of injustice and suffering, God is our refuge and our strength. The Psalms help us to express what we may be thinking, what we may be feeling. The Psalms, for all of God's people for all time, calls the believer to be real before God, before that expression even became popular. The Psalms call us to be real before God. It's such a joy to be with all of you week after week and during the week. As I was with the men yesterday morning praying and eating a great breakfast, it was, it was great to be in the company of one another as we, as it were, were real with one another. The masks were left at the door. In fact, if you wear a mask, you have to leave it at the door to the fellowship hall. To be real before the Lord. And God's word helps us. It, it helps us give language to how we're feeling. In his commentary on the Psalms, in his introduction, John Calvin, the great French reformer, wrote this. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, 
an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. He goes on to say this about the Psalms. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need and next from faith in the promises of God. It is by perusing these inspired compositions that men will be most effectually awakened to a sense of their maladies and at the same time instructed in seeking remedies for their cure. Indeed, an anatomy of all parts of the soul, as in a mirror. And the Psalms present both the malady, what's wrong, and the remedy, how it can be made right. What can miserable Christians sing? The Psalms. What, to use the words of John Calvin, can grieving, sorrowful, fearful, doubting, confused Christians sing? The Psalms. I hope if you haven't already done this, you would take time to read those two articles that I included in this week's Preparing for Worship email. What can miserable Christians sing? We're not all miserable all the time. There's joy and excitement, but oh my goodness, living life in a sinful and fallen world brings with it miseries. And if the church can't acknowledge that and can't sing that lament to God, then we're really missing one of God's greatest gifts to his people. Psalm 12 is a corporate lament. It's voiced through David, but it's for all of God's people. And as I believe we will see, Psalm 12 is a battleground upon which we will see a war of words being fought. Join with me now as I read Psalm 12. And I'll go ahead and read the title. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a Psalm of David. Save, O Lord, For the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. 
Let's first take a look at the situation. Here's David's observation. Again, the particular historical circumstance and background is unknown. But once again, that makes it almost more applicable to God's people in any age. Listen. For the godly one is gone, for the faithful has vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. There's mention of flattering lips, lips that tongues that make great boast. David here is engaging in a bit of hyperbole. In intended exaggeration. Everyone, no one. Yet from his perspective, from his vantage point, that's what he's feeling at the moment. No one godly, no one faithful remains. And we heard that's what Elijah said as well. Elijah, after seeing the miraculous deliverance of the Lord in defeating the prophets of Baal, a word from a woman, the queen Jezebel, sent, sent Elijah running for his life. He had just seen the power of God, the word of God, come, come made known. And yet he ran on account of the words of man. And he said, I am the only one left. I'm it. I'm the last one. The very end of our passage, if you didn't hear it, God said, uh, by the way, I've reserved 7,000 like you who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. <clears throat> Whatever the case, it was a time of moral and spiritual decay and David, speaking for all, feels all alone. Now, have you all ever felt all alone? Some of you, and, and to be, at times, I want to be left all alone. I'm sorry to say that, but occasionally, somebody like me who loves being with people wants to be left all alone, but that's really not what we're talking about here. This is the kind of being left all alone where it is discouraging, and you look around, and there is no one else but you. I've included recently this great chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith of the communion of saints. The importance of, of the church being together to share in one another's gifts and graces. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a faithful pastor in Nazi Germany who went to his death because he opposed Hitler and the Nazi regime wrote a book called Life Together in which he at times isolated in prison on account of faith in Jesus Christ and opposition to evil men was all alone and he longed for Christian fellowship and Christian companionship. He was all alone. David here is all alone. Have you ever felt all alone? Notice this description of the wicked. Now, why do I say the wicked? Look with me at the last verse. On every side, the wicked prowl. All of these lies, flattery, hypocrisy. When it says in verse um, 2, 
and double heart they speak. It's two-hearted. It's heart and heart in the literal translation. It's two-faced. It's hypocrisy. It's saying one thing and doing another. There are lies and flattery. There is hypocrisy. There is arrogance and boastfulness. And there is a voice of autonomy. I am master. I am Lord. Who is Lord over me? None. I am. And it's characterized as wicked. But notice, they all have to do with speech. There is not a single sword being thrust, literally. There's not a single thing being stolen. This are sins of speech. And even the, rec- the wicked recognize this. Look at this, verse 4. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. This is a description of the wicked, and it's through speech. And sinful speech comes from corrupt hearts. Jesus in Luke 6 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is more than just speech. This goes down to the heart. When when, when, uh, Paul, the apostle, is trying to talk about the universal sinfulness of man, total depravity, in particular, the Jews, his own people, God's own people, in Romans 3, He begins this in verse 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And listen how he continues to describe this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. When Paul wants to describe man's sinfulness and man's depravity, even to the Jews, God's own people, he goes straight to the throat, straight to the tongue, straight to the mouth. Later, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4, A couple of verses that instruct Christians. He'll say in chapter 4, verse 15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. And then in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Recall the fall of man into sin. Genesis chapter 3. How did it happen? Well, if you're a parent and you ever get the question, how did evil come into the world? Or where does sin come from? Uh, Let me know how you've answered that because I'm still working on that. There's a bit of mystery to it, isn't it? But what is not mysterious is the method the enemy of God used, right? What did he use? Deceptive speech. He told a lie. And what did our first parents do? They believed it. They believed a lie. 
Jesus, in addressing the people in John chapter 8, would speak of the devil as being a liar and the father of lies. Look at how this psalm ends. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Again, speech. This wickedness and this vileness is speech. Notice that the prevailing conditions don't change. At the beginning, there's vileness and wickedness, and at the end of this psalm is vileness and wickedness. It ends on a somber note, I believe, to help keep God's people reminded of their constant dependence upon the Lord. The circumstances may not change, but God is always pleased to change the person at the center of those circumstances, us. Now, when was this psalm written? Was it written sometime between 12, well, sometime before Christ, or was it written last week? I mean, really? I mean, fake news, lies? I have... Everywhere we turn in our society are falsehoods, are lies. I believe Psalm 12 is a commentary on verse 3 of chapter 11 where we were last week. Look at verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here the foundation of truth is being destroyed. You cannot have a friendship, you cannot have a marriage, you cannot have a church, you cannot have a society that doesn't value truth, that doesn't work hard to maintain truth. You know, they don't call it a covenant of marriage for nothing. You're pledging before God and witnesses a covenant, a that you're going to work hard to maintain this relationship. And it's, and it's based on truth. And you've got to operate truthfully in it. I believe Psalm 12 is going to provide the answer. What can the righteous do? Because you see, there is another aspect of the situation that you may not have noticed. And what's that? God is on His throne, sovereignly ruling over all of the affairs of men. Look back at Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. Last week we sang, God is our refuge. And I believe, Adam, that's what you were playing again. Thank you. It's a great hymn. Because the Lord is reigning sovereignly. We see what is taking place all around us. But by faith, believers see God still on the throne. Still see God as their refuge and their strength. A very present help in time of trouble. 
So this is the situation. And what does David do in view of this situation? In observing the world around him, what does he do? He makes a request of God. And as I will see, I believe we will see, he actually makes two requests. David's, David reacts to the situation how? How does David respond? He prays. Now, how would you respond to what you see around you? Would you go after the person telling lies? What? Anybody like getting lied to? It's not fun, is it? What's going to be your response? Are you going to go after that person? David prays. And why does David pray? Because he understands that sin, while it may bother him, while it may make him uncomfortable, sin is chiefly against God. And because that's the case, he appeals for God, to God, for him to act. God, he says, vindicate your honor through both salvation and judgment. So here is the first request. Are you ready? Save. Save. Many of your translations may say help. It's a good translation. Save. Help. Oh Lord. This, my friends, is a short, sharp prayer. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that God's not really impressed with long-winded, drawing attention to yourself prayers. This short prayer, save, O Lord, is enough to get God's attention. Many of you remember Nehemiah. <laughs> Nehemiah, when he saw the condition of Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept and he prayed. But then when he was called, I mean, for days, and then when he was called into the king's presence, what did he do? It, it's interesting. In, 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 um, in one verse, the king says, what do you want me to do? And then it says, and I prayed to heaven... And then the next verse, he gives an answer. Nehemiah knew what it was like to plan protracted prayer. He also knew that it was okay and absolutely needed to do an on-the-spot prayer. Here is an on-the-spot, as it were, prayer. Save. It's a small prayer. I was reminded about this, that small ships can get into small harbors. Big ships are limited to just big harbors. Small ships can get into small harbors and, small, and, and big harbors as well. Here is a small ship. Save, O Lord. But he also has this request at the beginning of verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Well, who's the them? Who's the them? It could be faithless Israelites around him, or it could be pagan Gentiles. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 3, we read, I myself, the Lord is speaking, will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. So we don't know whether it's faithless Israelites or pagan Gentiles, but the, the Lord is petitioned by David to cut them off. David responds to the situation by making a request to God in prayer. Now let me ask you all this. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? Does God recognize your voice, in other words? Can you say, save, O Lord? 
help, O Lord, and the phone be answered? Does God recognize your voice? Have you spent time with him in prayer? Is your relationship with him through Jesus growing so that when the conditions are such, you say, help, Lord, save, Lord, and he hears and he answers. In the midst of lies and flattery, David runs to God and you will see in a moment he draws strength from God's word. He runs to God and he rests in God's word. David makes a request of God. And how does God respond to this request? Let's find out. In verse 5 we see God promises to take action. God hears and responds. God answers prayer. Because of the lies, flattery, hypocrisy, arrogant boasting, and an autonomous spirit, because of that, the poor are plundered and the needy groan. Okay, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Absolutely untrue. Words hurt. Words maim. Words kill. And because of all of this, the poor are plundered, the needy groan. And God says he will do two things. I will arise and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Now God is not the only one who responds. David also responds in in declaring that he will trust in God's word. Look at verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will keep them. You will guard us from this corrupt, sinful, wicked generation forever. Now, God, when, when we read this, you, O Lord, will keep them. Who's the them? Well, some commentators say, ah, that's the people. But as I studied this passage, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing that. What I am seeing is God will keep his promise to arise. God will keep His promise to place His suffering people in the safety for which they long. God, in other words, will be faithful. He will keep His promises. Because next, God will guard us. That is, God will protect His people from this wicked and vile generation. When God says, I will arise and I will place Him in safety, David says, I will trust. Years ago, we did a great study uh, from John, the Gospel of John, the I Am, Jesus in His own words. And I think another great study would be this, I will. Go through Scripture and see what God says He will do. I will, I will, I will arise, I will place Him in the safety for which He longs. Hey, kids, when you make a promise, what are you supposed to do? When you make a promise, what are you supposed to do? I heard it. Keep it. Right. When God makes a promise to his people, what are we to do? Believe it. Trust it. And live accordingly. Notice this description of God's word contrary to the description of the the words of man. God's word is pure speech. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. And in this time, silver, believe it or not, was more valuable than gold. 
And this example of silver refined in furnace on the ground, purified seven times, is an attempt to use language to say God's word is absolutely 100% pure and undefiled. It's absolute truth. It's absolute goodness. It's absolute beauty. Here, we see God does not change. He is stable. His word is true and trustworthy. And it's in His stability that we find our sanity when life is anything but stable. So we see here, God speaks and we are called to listen, to believe, and to trust. Here is the battleground for the war of words. Pure words, True words versus false, corrupt words filled with falsehood and flattery and duplicity. Now, why would God in His wisdom allow His people to live in this kind of environment? To make His people more godly. Because if we're less comfortable here, then we're more hungry for there. Heaven. The world to come. And this choice is always before us. To be distracted and disoriented by the words of man, which as you saw, are full of lies and flattery and boasting and arrogance and hypocrisy. Or to rest upon the word of God. I want us to think for a moment. We are surrounded by lies. And some of the lies that the church is tempted or hears is God is like this or God is not like that. And they cannot be supported by God's word. And another lie that Christians are tempted to hear and believe is in order to get right with God, you must do X, you must do Y. All around us are potential words that take us away from God's word. Even when cloaked with religious language. Oh church, how we need to be with one another in God's word. To be able to distinguish the lies and the falsehoods from the truth. So this is a war of words. But I want you to know that this war, in many ways, has already come to an end. We read in 2 Corinthians, For all the promises of God, and we have seen promises, find their yes where? Children, where do all the promises of God find their yes, find their fulfillment? In Jesus Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the absolutely perfect and trustworthy word of God. Because in John 14, John 1 verse 14, what do we read? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word that's full of grace and truth. Remember, the word speaks at the transfiguration. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Jesus, the word in the flesh, speaks. He speaks. 
And unlike man, sinful man, we read in 1 Peter that Jesus committed no sin. And then how does Peter go on to describe it? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus spoke truth because Jesus was and is the way, the truth, and the life. Now to finish up, I want us to look at this first word again. Save. Help. Save. For those of you that like language, this is none other than the Hebrew word that becomes Joshua. And for you language fans, this is none other than the word that becomes Jesus. We read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and you will name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So here's a question. Has Jesus saved you from your sin? Here's verse 1 again. Savior, save. Save, Savior. Help. Jesus says, come to me for rest, for drink, for food, for life. My friends, the war of words is over. Remember on Good Friday... The words of the religious leaders, the words of the civil authorities, we've finished this problem. And think about the legions of Satan, the demons and Satan. Are they speaking among themselves? It's over. But here comes Easter. Here comes the resurrection. Because God's word, Jesus, has prevailed in the war of words. We see it now by faith. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, We know that the lies are not just out there in society, but they are in here, in our very selves. The lies we tell and the lies we believe. Oh, Father, would you make us a people of truth who long to to speak the truth to our neighbor, to build them up and not to tear them down. Father, we thank you that the speech of Jesus was absolutely true and perfect. There was no deception and no corruption that came from his mouth. And because of that, Father, he could take our place on the cross for the lies and the deceit and the flattery and the hypocrisy that cling to us like our very skin. Oh, Father, would you deliver us from believing lies and help us to eagerly Long to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Words that are pure, 
words that are true and words that bring life. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.